Welcome to the teaching ministry of Dr. Fred Lowry, illuminating God's Word for today's world. The choice, the Word of God, or the world. The choice, Christ, or culture for us. We can choose Christ. Number one, never be angry at the same time, husband and wife. Never yell at each other unless the house is on fire. Remember that it takes two to make an argument. The one who is wrong is the one who will be doing most of the talking. Just a little hint for you. Yield to the wishes of the other as an exercise in self-discipline if you can't think of a better reason. You have a choice between making yourself or your mate look good. Always choose your mate. If you must criticize, do it lovingly. Never bring up a mistake from the past. We've all learned from that, haven't we? Neglect the whole world rather than each other. Never let the day end without at least saying one complimentary thing to your mate. Never meet without an affectionate greeting. When you've made a mistake, talk it out and ask for forgiveness. Number 12, never go to bed mad. Those are just some good down-to-earth principles if you want to have a happy marriage. And not just a good marriage, but a great marriage. Susie's four years old. She was learning. uh, She was in preschool, uh, nursery school, and... They told her the story about Snow White, and she got all excited. She came home to her mother and said, i got to tell you this story that I heard today. And so she told her about the story and about Prince Charming riding in on his white horse and kissing her back to life. And the little girl said to, to Mama, and guess what happened next? And the Mama said, they lived happily ever after. The little girl said, no, they got married. <laughs> well... Sometimes uh, we realize those fairy tales are not, uh, they're just fairy tales is what they are, that all of us have to work on our marriages if we're going to have a happy marriage. So I want to give you some, just four things today that if, you, if you've got a good marriage and you want it to be a great marriage, I want to mention four areas that, that you need to work in to go from good to great. We began with the first one, that a great marriage calls for a great commitment. We live in a disposable culture that wants to say, I do for now, not forever. Uh, That wants to, to just look at marriage as something that's temporary. In fact, there's a London shop that does a, a wedding band that's not completely closed as a reminder that you can get out of this thing when you want to get out of it. And that's our culture today, a culture that wants to redefine marriage and take away the sacredness of marriage. We live in a contractual society, one that wants to tell us that marriage is simply a contract that you can easily get out of based on your whims and your wants or even your weaknesses. Culture says that marriage is a temporary bond sustained by emotion. God says marriage is a permanent bond 
sustained by a mutual commitment. That two people have a commitment to each other. See, the, the world says we stay together for as long as we both shall love. But God says we're to stay together for as long as we both shall live. We want to know about marriage. We need to follow God's plan. If you follow God's plan, you get God's protection. If you follow God's heart, you get God's help. And God says one man to be married to one woman, and that to last for a lifetime. In Matthew 19, 6, we find these words. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God hath joined together, let not man separate. That's covenant. Covenant means two become one. I becomes we, never to be separated. You see, God knew that we couldn't get married and base that marriage on lust because lust lapses. He knew that we couldn't get married on physical attraction and base it on that because beauty fades and gravity takes its hold. You know that. You marry a guy you think looks like Brad Pitt and ends up looking more like Sam Donaldson. Or you marry Julia Roberts and you end up with... Janet Reno. Uh, You know, things happen to us. So we don't marry and base it on physical attraction. We don't base it on feelings because feelings are fickle, up and down like a fast yo-yo. We don't base it on a contract that's easily broken. You see, a contract is based on convenience and has everything to do with performance. Covenant is based on character and has nothing to do with performance. In other words, you keep the covenant regardless of how the other person performs. A contract is just signing of the names, but a covenant is a binding of the heart. The thing that makes a covenant a covenant is that you keep it when you want to and when you don't want to. You keep it when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. A covenant is forever. There was a couple that won a a happy marriage contest over in Alabama. And the goal was to write a description of a happy marriage. And listen to what they wrote, because it's so powerful. It's so right on target. We gave when we wanted to receive. We served when we wanted to feast. We shared when we wanted to keep. We listened when we wanted to talk. We submitted When we wanted to reign, we forgave when we wanted to remember. We stayed when we wanted to leave. That couple gets it. They understand what marriage is really about and the unselfishness that marriage requires. That's why when we're so big on covenant because we believe that's what God has ordained marriage to be, a forever covenant. And at the core of covenant is the walk of death. In the Old Testament, they took that walk of death, reciting the duties of a covenant. And they would be so bold as to say, God, kill me on the spot should I ever break this covenant. So for a marriage to live, our selfishness has to die. There are three causes of marriage problems, three root causes of every problem you've got in your marriage. These three things will be the root cause. 
Number one, selfishness. Number two, selfishness. Number three, selfishness. At the bottom of every problem you have is selfishness. Uh, this is an, an earthy illustration, but I'm going I'm to give it to you anyway. Uh, growing up in Alabama around dogs, uh, you think of a tick on a dog, and that tick sucks the blood out, wants to suck the blood out, the life out. And when you get a, when you get a person who's selfish in a marriage, he's just sucking the blood and the life out. You get two selfish people, I guess you've got two ticks and no dog. <laughs> you've got two people sucking the life out of each other and out of that marriage. So selfishness is the real problem in marriage, and that's why Christ is so important, because he's the only one that can help you become unselfish. He's the only one that can give you the strength and the power to put someone else's needs ahead of your own. Someone else's interest ahead of your own interest. So marriage is a covenant that's to last forever based on unselfishness. That means you close all exits. That means divorce is not an option. That means that you can look at your wife, your husband, and say, I am committed to you and to this marriage today, tomorrow, and forever. That's God's plan for marriage. The second thing, a great marriage means a great friendship. The foundation of a marriage is friendship. That's why it's, you ought to really become friends before you ever get married. That's another reason why you shouldn't have sex before you get married too. Because you first want to spend that time getting to know each other and becoming good friends. And your goal in marriage is to become best friends. So a good marriage requires a good friendship. A great marriage requires a great friendship to become best friends. Now, some of you may need to refresh your marriage in, in that area. You, you, it's so easy to become busy and preoccupied, and we neglect the friendship part of marriage of spending time together, of doing things together, of sharing similar interests together. Or maybe some of you have never had that in your marriage because you've just gone in separate directions. And I encourage you to work on becoming good friends. The good news is you can do that now. You can begin this morning building a friendship with your wife, with your husband, and the results will be immediate and they will be wonderful. Lee and I are, are, are best friends. We, we eat together, we talk together, we pray together, we minister together, we play together, we travel together, we even sleep together. We're best friends, and that's how marriage ought to be. So I encourage you to make your spouse your close friend. Let me just give you some characteristics of friendship. Number one, you believe in each other. You believe the best of each other. It's, it, it's almost like you become president of your mate's fan club. You're always in your mate's corner. You're, you're pulling, believing in your mate, uh, becoming a cheerleader for your mate. You see, everybody needs someone to pull for them, 
to believe in them. And that's so important as you do this thing called marriage, that you believe in one another and that you build one another up and that you affirm one another. Let me just say it this way. Spoil your spouse, not your kids. (laughs) You see, some people reverse that. In fact, many people reverse that. They spoil the kids and neglect the spouse. So I say spoil your spouse and don't neglect that spouse. Uh, make sure you discipline those kids and, and lovingly you take care of them. But you don't put your kids before your mate. Believe in each other. Build each other up. Uh, encourage and show that appreciation for each other. You know, I was reading about a, a survey they did with newlyweds. They followed newlyweds for 10 years. And they found out that out of 100 statements you made, if you made as many as 10 put-downs, you eventually got a divorce. In other words, if, if just 10% of the time you put down your mate, the marriage didn't, didn't make it. So make sure that, that you don't put down one another, but you build up one another. You encourage one another. The second characteristic is that you're there for one another. We all go through ups and downs. We, we have difficult times. We need someone to be there for us. Somebody said it this way, a friend walks in when others walk out. You see, when, when, when you're having a tough time, you need to know there's somebody who's going to always be there for you. Best friends have a positive history together. When the bottom falls out, you know your friend will show up. And that's how you ought to be in that marriage. You ought to be the kind of friend who's there for each other. Galatians 6, 2, carry, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. The third characteristic of friendship is that you embrace and celebrate your differences. Don't let differences drive you apart, but understand that God made you different so that you can complement each other and so you can complete each other. Don't try to change one another, but enjoy your differences. Celebrate those differences. You see, there's, God designed you in such a way that that you'll never know the fulfillment, the joy, the completion unless you and your spouse become one. And it's a beautiful thing when you understand that you complement each other. When you've got weaknesses, your mate has strengths to complement your weaknesses, to, to, to take up the slack. And then it goes the other way. Where one is strong, the other weak. Where one is weak, the other is strong. And so together we make a wonderful team. And there's no I, there's no I letter in team. It's two people who form a team, who believe in each other, who care about each other, who are there for each other. You know, you know I think this is a good discipline for us to do. If you happen to be seated beside your wife or your husband, I want you just to look at your wife or your husband and say, I am a better person because of you. Can you do that? Just look. Go ahead right now. I am a better person because of you. Some of you have a little trouble with it, aren't you? But that should be our attitude. 
I am a better person because God brought you into my life. Number four, you're honest and open with one another. If you're going to have a great marriage, you've got to learn to be honest and open. You've got to build that intimacy in the relationship. You've got to get close to one another. There's a little acrostic that's probably in your notes for close. That means confidentiality, loyalty, openness, sensitivity, empathy. Those are the ways we get close to one another. And you see, a friendship can never grow beyond the level of openness, of transparency. So if you're going to build a great friendship, a great relationship, a great marriage, then you've got to get close. And you get close by opening the shutters of your life to somebody else. And in the safety of that environment, you're honest and open with one another. Number five, you are fun to be with and you make each other smile. You know, friends are just fun to be with. That's one of the reasons you become friends, because you enjoy being together, and you enjoy laughing, and you make each other smile. You put the fun back in dysfunctional. So become great friends. Number three, a great marriage calls for great communication. Again, if I could just say there's one thing you ought to work on in your marriage, it's communication. Nothing is more important. It's the lifeblood of the relationship. Communication is like blood to your body. It's life to that marriage. So you have to learn how to talk to one another, how to listen to one another, how to to let somebody else know what you really feel, and to, to walk in each other's lives. To be able to communicate. That, that's, that's the only way your marriage is going to live and thrive. If you understand the importance of communication. Because it's so easy to misunderstand. If I were to ask you, how many of you have ever tried to say something to your mate as clearly and plainly as you possibly could, only to have your mate misunderstand? We've all been there many, many times. And so we've got to work at this thing of understanding. We've got to learn how to communicate with one another. Some psychologists tell us that 90% of all marriage problems could be worked out if we could just understand one another, if we could just see it from the other person's perspective. So if we're going to get good at marriage, if we're going to build a great marriage, then we have to learn to become great communicators. And the quickest way to improve your marriage is to start talking, to start communicating, to start listening. You know, that they've done some research with couples that have been married for several years, and they asked this question, if you had to get married all over again, what would you be looking for? Physical attraction, personality, what would it be? Here's what they gave, the communication. More important than physical attraction, more important than personality, at the top of the list, if I had it all to do over again, I would make sure that the two of us could communicate. That's so, so important. 
And you see there are two kinds of conversation. One is informational and the other is relational. Men are good at the informational part. I mean, uh, you've had fun men this weekend because you've been able to give weather reports. And, you know, it's been a, you know, the weather's been doing different things. So you've had a lot of information you could dispense and share. And men want to talk about sports and the weather and those kind of things. But you see, information is giving out. Communication is getting through to someone. It's a big difference. So, so don't stop at information. You've got you've to have relational conversations. So I, if I were to ask you men this morning, did you have any relational conversation with your wife this past week? Not did you give her information because I know you did. But did you have relational conversation? Did you talk feelings? Did you get beyond just facts? We've got to learn to communicate. We've got to learn to share feelings. And that, that involves a couple of things. Time and taking risk. If you're going to communicate, it's, it's going to take time. It's going to take some effort, some energy. But it's going to involve risk. Anytime you share your feelings openly, it involves some personal risk. But the benefits are well worth it. I read a story about a small town that had a volunteer fire department. And uh, they just kept one guy there on a rotational basis. And he would, you know, ring the siren, blow the siren. and, And, you know, they would come, the volunteer people. And so they had one guy to answer the phone, and the phone rang, and, and he answers it, fire department. And the person on the end of the line was panicked and said, we have a fire. And he said, where? But it, she'd already hung up. So he, he didn't know what to do. And then in a few minutes, the phone rang again. He answered, fire department. We have a fire. Send the fire truck right now. And she hung up. Well, now, he just, he just totally doesn't know what to do. He goes outside as if he can see smoke anywhere. He doesn't know where to send the fire truck. So the third time, he was ready. He wasn't going to answer the fire department. That phone rang the third time. He picked it up, and he said, where's the fire? She said, in the kitchen, and hung up. <laughs> well, in our marriages... We have to deal with the real issues because you can have a phone and you can have a fire truck, but if you don't know where the fire is, if you don't know what the real issue is, if you don't deal with the elephant in the room, you're not going to make progress in this thing called marriage. Now, I agree that women are better at communication than men, so, men, we got to work harder on this area. And one of the reasons women have such an up, not only because they like to talk, but 60% of communication has to do with facial expression, facial expression. And women have 250,000 different facial expressions. I know, I've seen all of them. <laughs> so they're much better at communicating than we, so we have, to, we have to work on that a lot harder as men. Number four, a great marriage calls for great forgiveness. Every marriage comes with a built-in set of problems and frustrations and difficulties. No exceptions. Nobody gets a happy marriage automatically. 
Nobody gets a great marriage handed to them. It takes a lot of time and effort and sacrifice and work and energy. It calls for making tremendous investments. If you're going to have a great marriage, you've got to know that you're going to hurt your mate and your mate's going to hurt you, sometimes intentionally, most of the time unintentionally. But if you're going to keep this relationship growing, you've got to learn how to give and receive forgiveness. See, if you're going to have a great marriage, you must be a good forgiver. Let me change that. A great forgiver and a great forgetter. You've got to forgive and you've got to forget. You say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. I, I have enough trouble forgiving, but I can't forget. That's okay. It's just every time you remember, forgive again. Every time it comes up in your mind, forgive again. Because we're going to need to exercise forgiveness if we build a great marriage. Holy wedlock turns into unholy deadlock. And there are many reasons for that. One is we're two different people with two sets of different expectations. One of the biggest problems in marriage is our unrealistic expectations. We bring all that into marriage. Another reason is we're imperfect people who bring our imperfections into this relationship. We all have baggage. There are things that others have done to us. And there are things that we have done to others. And so we bring that into the relationship. And by the way, just because you get saved doesn't mean you lose your sinful nature. So you, you come into this relationship as a sinner, an imperfect person. And then we are just simply self-centered. We don't like to admit it, but it's true. I read somebody who said uh, there are three stages of marriage. The first stage is you don't know them, but you love them. Second stage is You know them, but you don't love them. Third stage is you know them and you love them. That's where you can get, that's where you have to get to if you're going to have a great marriage. And you're going to have to work through problems, work through conflicts, work through situations. The lady said, when I married Mr. Wright, I didn't know his middle name was always Well, that's the problem if you're always right. But we need to work through our problems. You see, conflicts are inevitable. We all have them. It's not that people who get divorced and people who stay married have about the same number of conflicts. Conflicts can be a friend to your marriage. Conflicts can be used to help you grow and mature and can help build this relationship that we're talking about. So, So... Don't get bent out of shape for the fact that you have conflict. Make sure that you manage those conflicts, that you work through those conflicts, and that you do it according to biblical principles. I love the story about the chicken and the elephant who got locked in the same room together. And the chicken said, the first thing we got to do is make some rules. Rule number one, let's don't step on one another. (laughs) And that's a great rule for your marriage also. That we don't step on one another. And instead of stepping on one another, and let me read it to you, 
to you from Ephesians 4, 32. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible for relationships. It's a verse you ought to have on your refrigerator or keep in your billfold. Just as a reminder that this is how we are to do in relationships. We're not to step on one another. We're to build one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to forgive. We're to be, we're, even in our forgiving, we are to be g- gentle and tender-hearted. How do you forgive? The first thing, you forgive frequently. As often as you need to. That's what the Bible says. You know, someone wanted to count up how many times. That's not the issue. You continue to forgive. You do it over and over and over. And you don't keep count. Because love doesn't keep a list. You forgive frequently. And and you've got to forgive because guess what? If you don't forgive, what you do is you stuff it. You bury it. And any time you bury junk in your life, it is buried alive. It's going to come out. And it's going to come out in unhealthy ways. So forgive frequently. That's something you do for you. Even if they don't ask you to forgive. Even if they don't admit they've wronged you. Forgive anyway. Forgive frequently. Secondly, forgive freely. Not conditional. There is no if in forgiveness. I'll forgive you if. You'll never do anything like that again. I'll forgive you if. No, I forgive you, period. It's a gift of love that I give you. I forgive you. And then the third is to forgive fully. Because here's what the Bible says, even as God has forgiven you. That's the standard. God has forgiven you fully. Jesus has forgiven you of your past and your present and your future sins. You say, how can that be? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were future? All of them. All of them. When when Christ died on the cross, all of our sins were future. So Jesus is willing to forgive us of our past, present, and future sins. And we're told that we're to forgive others because God has forgiven us. And when you forgive your mate, you don't go back and rehearse old problems, past history. That's not forgiveness. You let the past be the past, and you move on in forgiveness. Somebody said that a a marriage is like a mighty oak out in the Rockies. And all these years... It withstood the storms and the cold, the bitter cold, the terrible weather. But yet it was was felled by tiny beetles. This huge tree that could withstand high winds and major storms and all the snow and ice. And yet little beetles took it down. And that's what happens in marriage. You'll hear me say this over and over again. It's the little things that make the big difference in marriage. 
You see, most of us somehow, when we, when we, when we face big things, we, we bow up and we're able to, 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 to make it through big stuff. But it's the little things that take us down. The little things that we do daily to irritate one another. But hey, some, some good news on the other side, it'll be the little things that makes your marriage great instead of good because you're constantly doing little things to encourage the other person, to affirm and build up the other person, to make the other person feel special and loved. So the little things make the big difference in marriage. Here's what Paul says in Corinthians. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel with others' grovel takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. That's the kind of love God wants you to have in your marriage. It's agape love. It's unconditional love. It's other person-centered love. It's not about you. It's about the other person. And it's about loving an imperfect person and meeting the needs of an imperfect person For the rest of your life, going the distance. I picked up a little booklet called Living by the Vows, just a little testimony of a man by the name of Dr. Robertson McQuilkin, who was president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, and his wife got Alzheimer's. And as she began to get worse with that terrible disease, he had the, the situation of needing to run a college and a seminary that he dearly loved. And God was using him in that leadership role or taking care of his wife. And there were many people who counseled him and basically all said the same thing. You're doing a great work at the college and seminary. You can be successful there. But you're not going to be successful with your wife. She's going to get worse and worse and worse. Let somebody else take care of her. And you can run the college, the seminary. But this man felt in his heart that he could not do that. And he he thought of the homes, the nursing homes that he'd been in. And he could see those, those people in wheelchairs against the wall. And he thought, you know, if I put her in a home, nobody may love her there. She may not get the care that she needs. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought, I have to be here for my wife. The, the college administration people 
got someone to stay with her during the daytime at the beginning of that disease. But every time he left to go to the office, it was just a mile away. Every time he left to go to the office, she became so visibly upset. And then all during the day, she would sneak out of the house and she would walk to his office. And he said many times at, at night, her feet would be bloody because she had walked and walked and walked to try to be the one she loved. He said she got to where she couldn't, she couldn't make any sentence, even a phrase she had trouble with. But he said one phrase, I love you, she could say, and she said it over and over and over. And he said, you know, it was many times it was embarrassing he said, at the beginning of the illness, I, I took her out to the grocery store with me, and she would take food out of other people's baskets, and, or she would, you know, walk away, and I'd have to go look for her. But he said, 42 years ago, I promised her that I would be with her in sickness and in health that I would be there for, no matter what happened. And he resigned his position as head of that college and seminary. And he stayed home with his wife. And here's what he said. He said... Other people could run a seminary, but no one else can love my wife like I love her. And he said, God has taught me so much through this experience because even though she doesn't know what she's doing so much of the time, and in the, in the midst of this terrible disease, She's never stopped loving me. And he said, I wish I could love God as much as she loves me. That's the kind of covenant, that's the kind of commitment that goes the distance, that gets the rewards. That's the kind of commitment that, that with that commitment you experience a love that God designed when he thought up marriage. And to know that you've been faithful, you've been there for your mate. You see, there's a, there's a passage over in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 15, where the psalmist says, a good man... A good man is the, is, the, is the man who will do what he says he will do. Even when it inconveniences him. And even when it hurts him. Or even when it embarrasses him. He will do what he says he will do. 
That's a good man. And every wife in this room needs a good man. Every man needs a good wife who will say, I will be there. Today, tomorrow, and forever. And together we will build a great marriage. We'll pay the price. We'll make the investment. We'll put the energy there, the time. And we'll build a great marriage. Here's what I believe. If you will do that, what you will one day have is a little bit of heaven on this earth. We hope you were blessed by our program today. If you would like a copy of today's program, go to www.fredlowry.com where you can find this program and other Christian resources by Dr. Fred Lowry. 